I'm going to stand up because I've been trained 40 years to stand up while I'm speaking. <laughs> I can't ever really break the habit. I'm delighted to be back in this because we had a debate here early in 2000 when English Heritage invited all the mayoral candidates. I remember the look of absolute horror on the audience's face when I said if I was elected mayor, I was going to abolish the existing restrictions on height and density in terms of development in London. Uh, it never occurred to me I'd be here um, giving praise for um, what uh, Doreen has done and uh, the involvement I've had um, with Doreen in her work and her in mine over the period since we first met in 1976. I can remember, I think, the first time I saw Doreen, she was standing on a cold, miserable November evening outside the tenant's hut in Kilburn, where we were due to have our um, Labour Party ward meeting because I'd just been selected as a Labour candidate. And I think it was absolutely miserable night. There was about three of us there. Um, and I think you were the first professional geographer that I'd ever met. I'd never had any desire to meet any, because <clears throat> when I did O-level geography, one of the few O-levels I got before I dropped out of school, it was mainly consisted of drawing maps, remembering heights of mountains and uh, rivers. And insofar as it ever got political, I think the nearest we got was when we'd have I mean, the, the, the teachers tell us the role that climate and coastline had played in um, holding back indigenous cultures from reaching the excellence um, of the British Empire. And as I recall, actually, we only really um, focused on those countries that had been part of the British Empire, though by the time I was at school, most of them escaped from the bloody thing. And so my relationship with, with Dawn goes back to 76, and she was one of the first people I turned to when we won control of the GLC to try and have some input um, into our industry and employment policy, and she was one of um, my appointees to the Greater London Enterprise Board, which we set up, really, to try and analyse and then correct all the things that Doreen still thinks are wrong with the London economy. Now, they weren't quite as bad then as they are now, so I, we didn't have a, a massive in, uh, input in turning that round, but then that wasn't our fault because an evil tyranny abolished us. I, <clears throat> but uh, along with Mike, I... Uh, we had this thing called the area, after the abolition of the GLC, we decided it was worth carrying on those debates and what was going on and out of it. And we had this aerial road group, which is, of course, aerial road is where Doreen lives, where we turned up and had very intense debates over many years about what was happening in this sort of post-Fordist world, <laughs> what we should do. Um, people like Robin Murray as well. And there's also Vela Pillay there, um, a wonderful man, now dead, sadly. And he'd also been one of our appointees to the GLEB board. And he had this wonderful one, because my appointees had to be questioned by uh, the, the council board that, uh, and so on, where we had, fortunately, had the votes. One of the Tories sort of suddenly said, here's an Indian businessman from South Africa. What possible contribution can he make to the dynamic London economy? And said something like, because he, his job was raising funds for, for businesses, and said... Do you have any experience of raising, say, £50,000? He said, none whatsoever. I seldom do less than £50 million. Um, <laughs> and he came, I mean, he came along to say at one point that he'd been, because he's very active in um, the, the anti-apartheid struggle, uh, an advisor to the ANC, and got an early warning that I mean, apartheid was going to go, and the ANC 
had to come up with a credible economic policy because as it was just a paragraph, very inspiring paragraph in their, their founding statement. And we started looking at the South African economy and it was the nearest. I mean, it made the Soviet Union look like a liberal market economy. I, almost everybody, I, there was a huge state machine all in the apparatus of repression. I think the majority of the white population worked in the apparatus of repression. And then there were three gate corporations that controlled 60% of the private sector. By the way, this is the easiest economy in the world where you could nationalise anything. Only three bloody companies and you got control of the whole thing. Um, but it was that when I became mayor, we my most embarrassing um, sort of relationship with Doreen because she was pounding on with all this work about what's rotten at the heart of the London economy and what it does to the world. And I was mayor of the bloody city and she turned up to interview me about this and I always felt she was about to say leap over and bang my head on the table. You've got to do more to change it. Um, but it was the dynamic and the contradiction. I always used to say when we're discussing it and about the London economy that this isn't the world I would have created, it's the world we're stuck with and not any longer. And this is where our opportunities come, because the scale of what's happened dwarfs anything since the Great Depression. And I don't think it is going to be as bad as the Great Depression, but it's only going to be worse than anything since. If you track I mean, what's happening on Wall Street and overlay it with what happened from the height of the market in 1929, the share prices are going down exactly at the same rate. And, of course, they're only halfway down if you're plotting that against what happened in 1929 to 1933. And if you look at the collapse in world trade, now, given world trade was much, much smaller as a proportion of global GDP then, but the collapse of world trade um, over the last year or so is actually greater than in the period at the beginning uh, of, of the Great Depression. Now, the one thing we've got really going for us which all the neoliberals really hate having to admit, is that, of course, the state sector is much bigger. And therefore, you look at the United States of America. In 1933, when Roosevelt came to power, only 5% of GDP was in the public sector. And, of course, now, even in America, it's well over 25%. And therefore, there was very much less that the state could actually do. Um, but it does mean we now face a huge potential for change and changing the nature of the London economy and making sure this doesn't happen again. I'm glad to see that after a slow start, I, Gordon Brown has started talking about the need to camp down all these little ghastly tax havens all over the place. Um, and given that about 40% of them are under our control one way or the other, this would be a, I mean, would release hundreds of billions of tax um, uh, for investment in nations that most need it and also actually shift the tax burden within nations such as this, where far too many great corporations and very rich people aren't paying their share. But it's a question of what we should be looking to move into. And here, if you think the economic crisis is depressing, is when you start to look at the, the conference currently going on over in Copenhagen, I mean, every new speech is more alarming than the last. But the Tyndall Climate Change um, Centre produced a paper in November that completely challenged all the sort of hopes that somehow we could stabilise the increase in global temperature at an average of two degrees Celsius. They said that basically almost all the estimates underpinned the Stern report, and Stern accepts this now, the debates about post-Kyoto, 
all about can we stabilise at two degrees Celsius increase. And they said the chance of that is about 7%. There's only about a 50-50 chance of stabilising at four degrees. Now, geographers can immediately start to work out exactly what that means in terms of catastrophic change for many nations. Many nations bordering desert areas becoming virtually unable to sustain their communities. A inundation and suddenly well, half and the, the world's population now live in cities and just how many of those were on coastal areas? I, when I, I, I went and opened an office in Mumbai, nowhere in Mumbai is more than a metre above sea level. And it's a, it's a peninsula surrounded on three sides. No question of building a Mumbai barrier around it. And the costs would be inconceivable. So huge change is coming. And I suspect that gradually as politicians wake up to the scale of crisis we face and recognise what they're doing at the moment is totally inadequate, there will suddenly be a mad rush to tackle it in exactly the same way that we had to recast the economies of Britain and America to mobilise the resources to defeat Nazism, we will have to mobilise and shift the economies of the developed world to actually tackle and defeat climate change. So this means a huge growth coming in renewable energy and in a whole range of green industries and in recycling because it challenges the fundamental underlying basis of what Doreen and Mike and many of the people in this room myself would all agree has been at the heart of what's gone wrong. It's this huge growth of consumerism. It's the substitution of things for relationships. That growth of consumerism that was the ideology that drove the American economy in the 1920s, that came to Europe in the 1950s, and is, was beginning and still is taking hold in much of the developing world. It isn't sustainable. And therefore what this crisis is about is not just rebalancing the banks a bit or a bit more regulation. It's forcing us to face up to the fact we really can't carry on like this. There isn't just another few more reforms that can patch it all up and get the show back on the road. The scale of the crisis coming with climate change means we have to fundamentally reassess basically how we do everything, how we run our cities, how we run our economy, how we live our lives. Because it is the case to have any hope of human civilization surviving we have to reduce our carbon emissions in the developed world by at least 80%, most probably 90%, by 2050. That means all of us. It isn't an abstract idea that applies elsewhere. It impacts on every aspect of our lives, every aspect of the way we will run our cities. And therefore, I'm delighted, my final point, to say that Doreen's already involved in our next great adventure, which is an organisation called Progressive London, we had a, it's to call together all those people that stand on the progressive side of the spectrum. So there's Greens and Liberals as well as unions and Labour people and people who aren't involved in anything and many academics. And we called a meeting in January, 600 people came. It's only focused on London and what we've been doing in one city. Uh, and I think there's a huge desire out there to now rethink where we are, the problems we face and find the solutions for them. And I'm delighted that Doreen's going to be working with us on that, amongst doing many, many other things as well. Thank you very much. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.